Welcome in to another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball, where we find the best tools to build the best players. Just got back from a road trip. We were in Lynchburg, Virginia for a six-game series. Uh, we won five out of six, hit really well, so very happy about that, but very glad to be back at, at our home base, which is in Salisbury, Maryland, um, and, and getting ready to open up another six-game series this week. So happy to be back, but had a, had a great trip overall. While I was in Lynchburg, I was able to do a podcast with Paul Nyman, who is um, a legend in the player development space, and, and he is the guest on today's episode. Paul is an engineer, but in 1995, he founded a company called SetPro, which stands for Sports Engineering Training Products. And it's something that is very player development driven. Paul has, has done a ton of research on overload, underload training, how to develop bat speed, how to throw harder for, for pitchers and maximize throwing capabilities. He's a fascinating individual. I really enjoyed our conversation because we get into how all this got started many years ago, um, what he would do from an organizational standpoint if he was running a professional organization, some of the similarities and differences in pitching and hitting mechanics, optimal mechanics for a hitter, and where do you where does he see baseball going in the next three to five years from a, an analytical and development standpoint? So if, if you're someone who is interested in player development, um, wants to acquire more bat speed or help your players more acquire bat speed, overload underload training for pitchers, this is going to be a great episode to listen to because Paul is fascinating and he does a great job explaining his his own research and what he believes in this episode. If you haven't, please make sure to go subscribe on iTunes. Um, and we, we appreciate it. It really helps the overall rating of the show. It helps us be able to reach more people and have more coaches be able to listen to to help more of their players. So appreciate it. And ladies and gentlemen, here is Paul Nyman. All right, we now welcome on Paul Nyman. Paul, thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you, Patrick, for having me. So there's been a lot of people um, that I've talked to in the last few days, and I've said, you know, you're coming on the show, and, and uh, they were really excited. Uh, Tom Eller, one of my good buddies with the Orioles, a hitting coach. Uh, Robbie Avilas, who's our pitching coach, um, where I'm at in low ways, big fan of yours too. Um, but for those who don't know um, – your background and, and kind of how you got into baseball. If you could just give a, a brief background on, on who you are and how you got to be so instrumental in player development. Okay. Uh, in terms of my baseball, it actually started when I was in junior high school. Uh, I went out and I set up uh, an old carpet as a backstop and I would go out and throw for maybe an hour and a half, two hours, almost every day. And I was going to become a pitcher for the Red Sox. Just so I was we were living in Waltham, Massachusetts at the time. That's where my baseball love, I think, started. Uh, I didn't play organized baseball because, uh, I mean, I played up and through high school. My junior year was cut, and I went for track and actually became a pretty good track person. But anyway, went to school, technical, graduated, engineering, electrical, physics, uh, and basically didn't do anything with baseball for the next, um, God, I don't know, 30 years, I guess. Oh, wow. Um, uh, Worked in industry, worked in military, commercial, so on and so forth, designing circuitry and managing and so on and so forth. Um, I basically retired first time from industry back in 89. And that's when I got interested in doing some baseball. I, I always wanted to do something with sports training. If that, that was something that had always been a desire of mine way back even in college. And I wanted to do something with baseball not baseball, but sports training in general. I, I really got interested in developing athleticism with the track and field. I did a lot of studying about the Russian training methods, overload, underload training, that type of thing. I was a high jumper, triple jumper, long jumper. So jumping, developing power, developing ballistic power was something that I became very interested in. And that combined with my technical background, you know, physics and, and engineering. Um, so in 89, 90, that's when I really started to become interested in doing some sports training stuff. And baseball, for whatever reasons, it was baseball. Uh, I came across a product um, 
that measured bat speed. It was in baseball America. Uh, I guess it was baseball America at the time. And that really intrigued me. Uh, it was a company called Sportstar, and they basically made a bat speed monitoring device. So for, I took that from there and with my engineering background, came up with a product to measure bat speed, reaction training, and some other stuff and started selling those products. And that's really the beginning of my this generation or this phase of my baseball career. Were you drawn to the pitching side more so than the hitting side or? Yeah. Well, here's the thing that when I got interested, it was the beginning of what I call the internet wars of pitching and hitting instruction. Okay. Uh, the big names out there, I don't know if you, you're a pretty young guy, so you might not, you were just a, just a little kid back then. Um, Dick Mills, I don't know if you know the name Dick Mills. He was huge in the instructional worlds on uh Video, you know, 1990s, mid, late 1990s, videotape instruction was a big thing. And the reason for that is because, you know, up until then you had books and articles, but now people could actually look at something and instead of having to visualize it, they could actually see it. And and so video instruction, the, the two big names out there at the time, and it's interesting from an internet standpoint, because the, uh, Dick Mills got pitching.com and Dave Hudgens got hitting.com and they were the two hitting and pitching. They were the two premier uh, online video purveyors of, of swing and throwing information. I was interested in pitching from day one, but the problem with pitching was it was more about instruction in other words. And I had no, one of the problems I had, I had no pedigree. Where was my pedigree? You know, I, in order to have any kind of instructional credibility, you either had to have, you had to have played or coached at a pretty high level. So I didn't have a pedigree. So the next best thing was to take my technical training and develop products and be able to sell products as opposed to information. And so that's the route I took. And I basically, I'm basically or gradually merged, melded into information to go along with the products. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. And, 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 and critical to this was developing some kind of fun. You know, I, I, the per- person I'll give most credit to, to my, becoming at least a little bit known is Brent Strom of the Astros. Mm. At that time, Brent Strom was the uh, Expos roving pitching instructor. Okay. And Brent has always been innovative and he saw some of my stuff. And that's really where I got my, really, he was my entry into the world of informational uh, hitting and pitching instruction. So you were essentially the first guy to be progressive in the, in the pitching development world. It, you know, it depends on how you define progressive. Um, I, I think I was, I started as a rabble rouser. Okay. In terms of, uh, and like I say, you, you, you missed, I could, I called the, from late nineties to early two thousands. That was the golden age of internet wars of how to swing and throw a baseball. And um, that, you know, I think during that time, I learned more about, how to throw a baseball and swing a baseball bat because there were so many people out there questioning not only what I was talking about, but what everybody else was talking about. Mm, I gotcha. Okay. If you, uh, if you were running a, a professional baseball organization from a, a developmental standpoint for pitchers, how mm. would you structure it? One of, I'm, and I'm not, I don't know exactly what's going on today. I think it's changed a fair amount today, but even maybe as much 10 years ago, uh, my concern was, is that basically what happened was major league organizations would draft players, spend a lot of money for the top players, play around with them for three or four months and then send them off. And that was my, I, you remember, you probably don't remember it. Kansas city uh, uh, at the time, I forget who the owner was the Kansas city Royals baseball Academy. Do you, does that ring any bells with you? What they did was this was Charlie Lau. He was, Charlie Lau was a well-known hitting instructor. They set up an Academy to develop baseball players. And they took basically what it was is they looked for athletes and maybe borderline players brought them in and created an Academy, like a university to develop baseball players. Okay. To me, that made a lot of sense. The problem was, is they didn't have the right understanding of how to effectively develop good swings and good throws. 
Uh, they were relying more on the old traditional methods, but they did develop players. Uh, and they did develop players that went to the ma- some players that went to the major leagues. To me, that was the blueprint of what major league organizations should be doing with the best, you know, using information of today versus what they had for information back then. In other so, words, go ahead, you, go ahead. you know, I, I, you know, what you're using is, you know, like I said, I, I don't think there's a not there had there wasn't and i'm not sure what i can't say it's the same as today because i don't know exactly what's going on your organization other organizations but there wasn't enough focus on how, you know developing the overall ability to swing and throw as opposed to working very specifically on certain aspects of the swing and throw so how would you uh, how would you go about that exactly like the overall throwing and swinging like if if you were in charge I mean, like, like what things would you put in place or um, to, to make that so that more and more players? I, I mentioned this to you before. You know, I've talked to some people who have, you know, people that, you know, like the um, uh, Chris Holt in your organization and, and people like Brent and whatever. And one of, the, one of the problems that I saw was they would tell me that it was very difficult to get everybody on the same page in, in an organization. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest problems that has been part of baseball. And in other words, you have a hitting instructor, A, double A, triple A, you have a pitching strike. They, they've they been brought up with a certain thought of how to best develop a player. And I think with the, the new stuff, if you want to call it that, the past 10 years, I think that's created some difficulties in terms of trying to create an overall consistent the problem I see is developing an overall consistent philosophy methodology of developing players. And today, you know, like one of the things I, I advocate, I wrote a paper back in 2007 called basically I called it the uh, uh, guide for becoming a major league executive. And one of the things I said in that is what you wanted was a system where, and it's happening today where you can monitor what's going on through the internet what I've advocated was back then taking pitchers who were going to pitch uh, maybe two days, three days from now, and they would be in charge of that day of videotaping and sending that videotaping information back to a central point for evaluation of that player. And so you had ongoing feedback coming back to a central location of what your players were doing on a day-to-day basis, and then be able to feed that back to your coaching staff. So th- that type of mentality, if you follow what I'm saying. Yeah, no, no, no that makes sense. That makes sense. Are there certain things that you see in the, I guess, pitching world products that you view, you view are don't really do anything that don't really help players from a player development standpoint, but you see them everywhere? I, I think, you know, one of the areas that, you know, I, I went to school, technical, like I say, engineering type training. But one of the things that I got into or, uh, or when I say things, the information that has helped me the very significantly in terms of understanding how to develop a player has been the, how, how do players actually learn how to move their bodies? What's called motor learning and control. And um, the, the, the pro one, one of the things is that you, you, you know, if you look at the products out there and if you're trying to develop a player, there's two things that a coach is, there's two things that have to come back to the player to help them get better. One is the knowledge of what's called, what's called knowledge of performance and knowledge of results. I'll give you an example. Knowledge of results is what was the end of, what was the score that day? How many players did they walk? How many players did they strike out? Okay. Knowledge of performance is the coach coming back and saying, well, your elbow was too low or you were rushing your, your delivery. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and so if you're looking at products out there, they fall in, they should fall in one of those two categories or ideally both. Uh, you know, do you have products like, I, I, I don't know. I, I forget what it's called, but you know, it's it's you you step on it, or you it's a, it's a pitching wedge or whatever that you put on the mound that you know that's supposed to help the player get into a certain position to throw the baseball. I don't know if it's you know it's it's something that you put on the rubber or by the rubber. Tools like that, you know, I, I'm not sure the value of them. In other words, tools that that what they're trying to do is actually affect performance. Uh, Tools like TrackMan are looking at results. Do you follow what I'm saying? In other words, you have two different kinds of tools. One tool is trying to help you move more efficiently, more effectively. 
The other tool is telling you how well you did. Okay. The problem is, is you need something that does both ideally. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I think the biggest, the limitation of these tools is not so much the tool, it's not the tool per se. It's, it's the application or the use of the tool. Is it possible to have a tool that does both? I think so. Um, I, I actually have developed several in the past. Um, like if you look at the bat speed products that I had, not only did I measure speed, which was performance, but how quick, how quickly you would can react. Okay. In other words, being able to measure how fast you swung the bat, how quickly you swung the bat and being able to feed that back to you so that the next try you can do better. Okay. So the ability to combine both of those types of concepts or, or of philosophies in terms of development is what's important is you need, you need performance measurement and you need results measurement and you need to know how to apply them. You know, the, one of the problems they say is they, well, you, you know, they, some of this, if you look at most of these products, um, especially the ones that measure, you know, measurements are only as good as how you can then apply those measurements. If you follow what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. So you can take a track man and spin rate and velocity, but how does that really affect relate back to how the player is actually throwing the baseball? That's right. where you, that's where you guys are swing the bat. That's where you guys have to come in, be able to interpret that information. Yeah. And it often is, I mean, knowing what the, the problem is or is often the easy part. It's finding the solution on how to fix it. Like that's, that's the hard part. Yes. Like Anybody online can can look at a swing and break down, you know, all the flaws, but it's how do you actually fix those flaws? But that's, that's where I come back to the motor learning and control. In motor learning and control, there's something called constraints. In other words, we learn through constraints. Again, I'll give you an example of a simple constraint. A hitting tee is a constraint, meaning that what you're doing is you're setting up a very specific situation. You're constraining the player uh, to, to, to a certain situation, a certain setup. Uh, so one of the important tools for changing movement patterns is understanding constraints and how to apply or set up the proper constraints to force that player to move a certain way or under a certain set of conditions. I'm, I've, you know, I'm a hitting coach. I've never gotten into too much into the pitching. I've, I've looked at some mechanics, but definitely not even close to um, the level that you're at or the amount of hours that you've studied. What are, what are optimal mechanics? I guess we can start out from from a pitcher's standpoint because it, it seems simple to me, but I'm, I haven't <laughs> dove in very much um, as to someone like you. Well, you know, I one of my if, if I'm the only remembered probably for one thing after I leave this baseball world uh, is the concept of intent. Okay, you know, I what what. And, and this applied to pitching as well, and to, to it really applies to hitting also, but really is where I saw it with pitching. The intent, what is the intent of your throw? What are you trying to do? Are you trying to throw a strike? Are you trying to throw it hard? Are you trying to, you know, throw a strike and throw it hard? And, the, you know, having the right goal, vision of what you're trying to do is critically important. You know, one of the things I, I, I advocate very much is early on, I said, find a professional player that you think you should look like and be able to visualize that. Okay. From a hitting standpoint, you ask the question to me, both from a hitting and pitching standpoint, same thing, efficiency, efficiency of movement. In other words, I see so many batters that are, you know, one of the players that I tried one of the concepts I tried to instill, or it's not instill, but advocate, was a no stride in terms of working with no stride. And one of the, the, the poster boy for my no stride uh, speeches was Jeff Bagwell. And if you, if you looked at clips of Bagwell, he almost took a negative stride. What he did was he lifted his foot up, came down in the same spot, but he spun like hell. He rotated like hell as he was going into, as his front foot came down into foot plant. Okay. The point being is that a lot of these players have what I consider a lot of movement that is counterproductive. When I, the swing to me, the most important thing of this part of the swing is quickness. How quick you want. A lot of people equate it to bat speed. It's not bat speed. It's how quickly can you get from set to contact? If you follow what I'm saying, like when your front foot lands and then you swing. Right. Yeah. And it's how quickly you can get 
from a bat in a non-moving position or the position where you're actually going to initiate the swing to the swing itself. Okay. And this is where a lot of players think that it's created by the muscles of the arms and everything moving the bat. Well, it's not the 90% of the swing is a, is a result of the upper torso rotation. And this is where there's a huge analogy between pitching and hitting. They both rely on the same principle, which is transfer of the momentum of rotational momentum, rotational speed of the upper torso, either into the, to the arm or to the bat. Okay. And this is where I think, uh, you know, if I'm looking at the number one thing that I always look for in a hitter is how quickly do they connect, uh, how effectively have they initiated the hands to the rotation of the shoulders on the initiation of the swing. What a lot of players do is they start their hands and then they start rotating. If you look at the highest level players, the hands and shoulders rotate at the same time to initiate the swing. And it's that one, it's really almost less than one, you know, in the olden days, now it's a whole different story, but in the olden days we used the VCR and frame rates on a VCR and a frame rate on a VCR was 30 frames. And it's like on standard TV, 30 frames per second. One frame is what differentiates really high-level players from less than high-level players in terms of getting their hand, the connection between, if they have more than one frame of movement of hands before the shoulders start to rotate, that's the difference between a super high-level player and a not super high-level player. Mm. And this is where I came up with the concept of the box, where what happens is everything starts like a box, the box meaning the if you drew uh follow lines of chest arm you're forming a box that box moves as one it doesn't your hands don't do this and then you start rotating it's everything starts like this well it's interesting you brought up the the torso as the main component a lot of people would say you know the the hips or um, the core but it's interesting that you you said the torso if you look uh, you know i've just published some stuff on on my twitter site uh you know, recent recent research that was done showing that from a pitcher and for a hitter, it's very much the same thing is that there's really very, once in our, in the process of swinging and throwing, there's actually very little action going on in the arm muscles themselves. Okay. Upper arm for, it's basically simply a, it's transfer of mo- transfer of movement motion from the, what the torso is doing to the bat or to the hands. If, if you follow what I'm saying. So like I say, that's this connection that I talk about where everything is connected. And then at the end, you're trying to, well, the concept that came with is a fish hook. You're trying to turn the knob of the bat into the belly button to generate that final transfer. Yeah, I was, I was reading um, the, some of the stuff that you posted and, and, you know, one of the things that stood out to me was that, um, you know, one of the studies, the conclusion came back was that the muscles were only firing during the delivery, the pitching delivery, just to be able to decelerate the arm. Yeah, that was a joke. I I questioned some, you know, the the component that he left out of that was the the, the shoulder, horizontal. He he actually did branch in brief. He he talked about the scap action and deltoid action, which is really all part of the shoulder complex, if you follow what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And the shoulder complex, like I say, for both, what's interesting on the hitting side, on the pitching side, the the critical aspect is creating what's called, what I call um, the, you know, abduction, adduction, where you're pinching, you're trying to pin, you're going from a stretched abducted position to an adducted position it's called scapula loading and unloading. Okay. What hitting it's a little bit, it's very, it's similar, but what is important is the pulling back of the bottom hand shoulder to create that turn, that quick turn of the bat knob. You follow what I'm saying? It's mm-hmm. this shoulder here. That's critical. The opposite shoulder, the lower, the, the bottom hand shoulder, that's critical for finishing off that swing. If you look at high level, you know, the players that I first looked at were Barry Bonds, Manny Ramirez, uh, Carew, uh, those players, um, Cabrera, I should say, if you wa- look at them, what they did is they, that at the instant before contact, this shoulder was pulling back and it creates that pulling that, that change in direction of the knob to create that final explosiveness of the bat. It's yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I definitely agree with um, with what you're talking about. It's interesting when you look online, how a lot of people will focus on that, on the back hip 
more than anything when it comes yeah. to hitting. What 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 are your <laughs> thoughts on that? Um, well, this goes back to the controversy of of how do you develop rotation? Is it because you're pushing off the backside? I mean, when you talk about the back hip, I mean, I guess the question I have is, how does a back hip in isolation do anything? Do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, it, I guess you know, I, I, I guess maybe it's I'm thinking about it more from you know when they being it when they land mm-hmm. when that front foot lands lands so that their head isn't too far over their front leg and so it's okay. like I okay, guess that's, but okay that's that's posture if you're talking about posture that you know that's what you know like I say the, the one of the big controversies used to be and I'm not sure how much it is today is the lower role of the feet and the back leg in terms of creating rotation. Okay. If you're talking about posture, we start to get into some other interesting areas such as launch angle. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, one of the things, you know, if you're familiar, if you've read a little bit about the Sepro stuff, you know, I came up with these four, four words, posture, connection, rotation, and whip to describe, it actually describes both the hitting and the throwing process. And that posture is critical because posture is what sets the path of the swing plane. Okay. Now, if you're talking about the, I, I'm so I mean, I mean, you need, you need to tell me a little bit more about what you meant by the back hip, I guess, so that I can put. That well, I guess context. okay, yeah, I, I probably could have done a better job saying that. So I, I when someone when a player is striding forward, mm-hmm. right? If they're not, like, um, essentially that back hip isn't loading, and they just dive on their front side so Mm -hmm. something has to keep them balanced as they're striding what it's that to me is a problem again this goes back to the jeff bagwell that i talked about bagwell didn't stride basically all he did was rotate okay if we if we accept the premise that rotation is the critical component of the swing that gender and the and the what i mean by that is it's getting upper. The reason why hips are important is because from a standpoint of the hitting is because they, they're the couple of things. One is the center of mass of the body is located just above the belly button. Okay. So, you know, everything we do from a balance standpoint is referenced to our center of mass. So that's why if you're at the plate, you basically try to set up in a roughly initially at least a 50, 50, distribution okay and then there's a loading process where the you know the the center mass loading will shift from the back side to the front side to a certain degree the problem is is if that is too extreme you know if you get too much shift then you like you're talking about potentially it's going to happen and that to me is a problem of not understanding how to properly initiate rotation this is what i call pelvic loading and unloading okay what you're doing is you're pushing off the back side as opposed to trying to engage the entire pelvic region to rotate. If you're gauging the entire pelvic region to rotate, there's much more probability you're going to stay balanced or less a tendency to want to dive forward, if you follow what I'm saying. I, I don't know if that helps to describe. No, 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 I, I understand. Yeah, yeah, no, I understand. I think, I think what you're talking about is more of a rotational problem than anything else. They're trying to develop rotation by pushing off the backside. Mm as opposed to effectively engaging the pelvic area. You know, I describe, I don't know, again, you're, you, you youngsters don't remember something. There's a player called, he, he was Matty Alou's brother, Moises Alou. Yep. And the analogy I used, if you look at Moises Alou, when he was at the plate, he was knock-kneed. He had both knees turned in, pointing to each other. And what I liked about that was that that created tension, both equal tension, equal and almost opposite tensions in his pelvic area. So that when he then lifted his foot up to stride, it basically was a spring uncoiling that was caused by both tension in both sides of the pelvis area, not just the backside where he's pushing off. I'm interested in uh, going back to the Jeff Bagwell, no stride. So right. I, um, are you saying that more players should no stride? I'm just saying that what no stride meant to me was it helped the player to get in a better balanced effective use of his lower body to swing the bat. Okay. I'm not saying that that is the technique that everybody should use. I'm just saying as I just use it, I would, I use it as a teaching tool to build awareness of what the player needs to do or feel in their lower body 
to, to more effectively rotate. Okay. Um, so to me, it's, 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 it's a, a, a benchmark or a checkpoint in developing a player's kinesthetic awareness of how they should be using their lower part of their body. I was, when I was talking to uh, one of my buddies, Tom Eller, who, who, you know, has, has all your products and is a big fan. He was saying one of the things he liked was the weightless back leg and how um, at contact, you don't want to have any weight in your back leg at all. It's contrary to what I see sometimes online where everyone or some people say like, you know, you want to hit off your back leg. Um, How did you come up with that conclusion? Well, if all you have to do is look at video. Yeah. It's not too hard. I mean, if I go back to when I first started SEPRO, there were so many things that were being said that if you looked at frame by frame video, which everybody does today, but back in 1998, 1999, nobody was doing that. Okay. Because they didn't have really the tools. I mean, you had a VCR and if you had an expensive VCR, you could do frame by frame, but most VCRs didn't have that capability. And then some computer stuff came out where you could do it online, which was even more uh, or on, on your, on your computer. But all you had to do is look at the video and go frame by frame. And 90% of stuff that people were saying you needed to do or, or they based their theories on wasn't happening. Do you see uh, from a hitting standpoint, I mean, is, is video, in your opinion, still the best way, the best piece of tech out there for hitting? It's any tool is only as good as the person ability to use it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Video can be good and it can be bad. I mean, it can be bad because if you have a predisposed notion about what you should be seeing uh, and you're not seeing it. Um, so, uh, for me, the most effective tool is video with side-by-side comparisons. In other words, you know, I'll take a player who is having a problem, and I'll take another player who I think is representative of what that player should be doing, and then be able to put them side-by-side or superimpose them on each other. And that's where you really start to see stuff. But the problem is, is okay, you see it, but then what do you do to fix it? Yeah. Okay. Based off of, of different pitch locations and pitch types, I mean, how do you – I guess it's it's one thing to to have a, a great swing for a fastball right down the middle, but how do you what, – what are optimal mechanics from a hitting perspective for pitches that are, you know, on the outer half, that are up, that are down, that's a slider away? I mean, I, I think that's sometimes where the, the hitting world gets gets it a little bit off where – it's not going to be exactly the same mechanics for every pitch type. Would you agree? I, uh, I think again, there's, there's two crit to me, there's two, two critical parts of the hitting process that are universal, whether it's inside, outside, upside down in terms of the pitch. One is swing quickness connection. The quicker the swing that you have, I remember way back, 19 or early 2000s uh there was controversy about what the front foot was doing on a changeup. in other words the timing of the front foot did you delay the you know was there a change in the stride timing so on and so forth and what i did was i took a player uh, i can't remember his name of the red sox and i had a sequence where he was hitting a fastball and he was hitting a changeup, and i compared them side by side there was no there was no difference in when his front foot came down timing wise but what he did was he delayed the final commitment of the upper body to make contact. So the initial part was the same. The front foot stride was the same. He just made his adjustment mid-swing, if you follow what I'm saying. Yeah. So there, adjustment. I don't, I don't know how you quantify adjustments in terms of I think what happens is, like I say, if you go with what I just said, there's no difference in the stride timing. There's no difference in the swing initiation. It's the mid-swing adjustment that takes place. And I'm not sure how you quantify or qualify that other than just get the good foundation, be able to get a good foundation so that you can hit the fastball, you can hit the curveball. Adjustments are then much more of a trial and error process. 
you mentioned the swing uh, being quick once once your front foot lands and how that how important that is which i definitely mm-hmm. definitely agree how how do you go about uh, helping a player improve that okay i mentioned the uh when i talked to you previous to this i mentioned jeff albert's name mm-hmm. one of the products i provide jeff albert when he was still in the minor league uh organization that when he first, I, mean, I think he was still with the Astros at the time, but I developed a product where I could measure from the time his front foot came down to the time that they made contact. Okay. And to me that either, either you got to use videotape, which can be a delay in the process, but I actually had, so I actually created a product where I had a force plate where it measured the time from, the foot coming down on the force plate to the time that the contact was made with the baseball. And that's what he used to work with his players to develop a quicker swing. Mm. Have you, uh, have you worked, been able to work with like all different types or levels of, um, of hitters and pitchers like deep from high school up to major leagues or, you know, I had I had a facility for a while. This was back in early 2000, and where where I am, it wasn't the best place to have a facility. So I worked with young players, and I worked with some older players. Um, I, I've worked done a lot of work online with players. Um, the, the biggest problem, not when I say biggest problem, it, it is a problem. It, it depends on two things: how committed the player is to making a change. I mean, I would say 90% of the players who think they want to change don't want to change. Hmm. They think they want to change, but they don't want to change. Okay. And then the other 10% you have varying degrees of, uh, of uh, commitment uh, and ability to make changes. You know, you have a lot of players who want to put the work in, but again, unless they have the constant feedback of both performance and results, it's very difficult to make changes because how do they know that they're doing something correct? Okay. The problem is I haven't, I don't, you know, to answer your question specifically, most of the work that I've done with players most of recently past 10, 15 years has been remote. You know, it's been yeah. remote. And the problem with that is I've got contact with them for a certain period of time. But as I said, if I have, if I'm working with a hundred players, maybe two or three will have the persistence to stay with it. And not get frustrated and revert back to, to a certain degree to what they were doing previously. Again, one of the biggest problems with pl- player development is putting them in a situation where they have to win, where they have to succeed, because that will typically force them to go back to what they are most comfortable with and what has, for the most part, worked in the past. You know, I know my son. You know, my son played professional soccer, and one of the biggest mistakes we did was having him change high schools to a school that had a better team than the team he was on because he went from a, a, a school where he would see 20 shots a game in goal to a school where he'd see three shots in game. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you can't, you know, you, you can't replicate game situations. It has, you know, you, you follow what I'm saying? It's yeah. very difficult to replicate game situations. So, the, you know, so game stuff is, is critical. And from a, if you took, if you did if major league players didn't play competitive games, or if you didn't have minor leagues playing competitive games, you wouldn't have major league players. Right. So it's, it, it, I guess essentially what you're saying is getting players to understand the notion that, getting better and, and developing is at a higher priority right now than trying to get a hit every single at bat. Cause we're trying to make these changes. Well, if you've read any of my stuff, you know, that one of my favorite sayings, and this applies and it applies almost equally well to hitters too, is the quickest way to ruin a pitcher is to make them a pitcher. Yeah. <laughs> because- I saw that. I was, I was going through your Twitter or Twitter this morning. I did see that. Yeah. And, and the reason is, is you get, a 10 year old, 12 year old, 11 year old playing little league baseball, whatever. Just throw strikes, Johnny, just throw strikes. Don't walk the bat, get the batter, you know, and, and it, it totally kills the incentive to try and do something other than throw strikes. What are some of the most common flaws you see in, in high school age pitchers? And is that, are those flaws you think man-made? Most recently, 
I, and when I say recently, I've, I've felt this way for quite a while, but I've become actually more vocal about it than most recently. The biggest problem with developing players, high school, certain college to a certain degree, if you want to go there, is the wind-up. Mm. The wind-up, going from a full, the full wind-up is one of the worst destructive tools that exists for a young player because what they end up doing is trying to use the linear momentum of pushing off the rubber to throw the baseball and they never learn how to properly use their upper body to throw the baseball. So that's why I advocate very strongly. Don't use the, when you're starting developing a player, when you're working with a player, I don't care what age, whether they're high school, college, whatever, spend a lot of time not working with the windup of the stretch. You know, think about it. How high do your relief pitchers throw out of the stretch? They're probably some of the hardest throwers, right? Yeah, I've seen some pretty hard throwers, yeah, this yeah. year. <laughs> um, so the point being is, what's the value of the windup then? Okay. Yeah, that's a great question. The value is twofold. One is if you're using it properly, Nolan Ryan is one thing, and this physic, from a physics standpoint, it makes sense. Nolan Ryan said that if I can, li if I lift my leg higher in the windup, I can throw harder. And that's because Nolan Ryan learned how to use the momentum of his leg to transfer it to the throwing of the baseball. Unfortunately, one out of a, a thousand players may know how to do that. Okay. Nolan Ryan did. Um, so the, the problem with the windup is it creates a push the baseball, use the momentum coming off the rubber to throw the baseball, as opposed to using the most efficient way to throw the baseball, which is, and again, if you look at a recent article, that rotation, 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 rotation is what you need to throw the baseball. Rotation, rotation, rotation is what you need to swing a baseball bat. Hmm. What are your thoughts on kids maybe we can just stay on the high school age area strength training weighted balls doing all that kind of stuff okay good question uh strength is important because you need the again if you go back to what studies are the may the the bigger muscle groups in the body are critical for developing the the the, the overall you know you're trying to move a mass okay the mass you're trying to move is you're trying to get you know Go back a little bit. One of the one of the critical, you know, like there's at least five or six critical check marks that I look at in a delivery. One of the most one of the most starting point is the differential between upper body and lower body when you're throwing. Okay, and to a certain and I mean that's you know you hear that all the time with about hitters too the differential between the upper and you know hips leading the way that type of thing. Uh, and the reason why that's important is because that creates the elastic band between the lower and upper parts of the body to create, you know, velocity, the twist, you know, the, the recoil or the, or the active portion of it. Um, the, the, well, I lose track. The question you asked me was basically the, refresh me. With okay, so the question essentially was, you know, what do you think of, of high school pitchers, you know, using weighted balls. Oh, yeah, yeah, weighted, sure, sure, sure. You asked about strength. And the reason I was talking about it is because you need, you need strength to move the, for the larger muscle, muscle groups that you need to move mm -hmm. during the throwing process. So strength is very important. Um, depends on what kind of strength you're talking about, though. I'll give you some, you know, I was, what happened was I got cut from the baseball team my senior year in high school, um, new coach, and we didn't get along too well. Went out for track in the first track meet, you know, I broke the high school high jump record that had stood for 17 years. But anyway, so that winter I was going to college. I trained. I lifted heavy. Yeah, that was heavy, heavy. I couldn't jump for crap the next when I first got into college. What I didn't understand was heavy lifting is not the same as explosive lifting. Okay. It's, it's, it's how quickly you can develop force that is a critical component. Uh, this is why, you know, one of the, if you look at today, a lot of what's going on with, with strength training is ballistic type activities, Olympic type training activities. And I, I learned that lesson 40, 50 years ago, that lifting heavy is not the same as ballistic activity. Okay. You need both. 
But, you know, and if you look at a well-structured uh, a peri periodized program is you develop a strength phase and then you develop a ballistic phase after that. So you need a strength foundation to then transfer into a ballistic foundation. So strength's important. Weighted balls, the same exact thing. Weighted balls, the problem with weighted balls is it's going to slow you down when you throw that baseball. Okay. So it will help you develop strength, but it's not going to help you develop necessarily speed. This is where I suppose the underload training comes in, you know, where you're doing both the overload and underload training. Um, so you said, you said supposedly, uh, well, I'm going to say, no, I mean that I, I use the wrong word. This is why you need to have both overload training and underload training. Okay. Uh, because what happens if you exclusively stay on overload and a lot of some of the training today is called plyometric training where they're throwing, you know, basically throwing a, a, a little bit and plyometric training. The problem is most people don't understand the true nature of plyometric training. Plyometric training is what you're doing. You, you want to listen a stretch reflex type action, but you, you know, typical plyometric exercise is what they call a box or depth, depth jump for the legs. What you're doing is you're dropping off a platform and then you're trying to immediately reverse direction. That's a true plyometric exercise because what you're trying to do is you're trying to stimulate uh, a stretch reflex response. And actually you're trying to deaden what's called the Goji, ten, uh, Goji sensing. There's Goji, uh, uh, I forget the name. It's a sensor that's a spiral wrap around the muscle fibers that sense how fast the muscle fibers are changing length. And whilst you try to slow you down to protect you. So what you're trying to do is actually deaden that response so you can actually move the body quicker. A lot of what's called the plyometric training for throwing is not plyometric. It's basically just a glorified form of weighted baseball training. Mm. Okay. And that can be, it can be, it can be different. It can be, it can cause more problems sometimes than it, than it tries to cure. So, over, so done prop, it's like anything else done properly, weighted balls, strength training, all of the above is very important, but it's all got to be done properly. Overload underload training in itself is an interesting subject. I've looked at just about every study that has come out on overload underload training, and it's a mixed bag. I would say if you looked at the numbers, half of the studies show some benefit, half of the studies show minimal benefit. Um, overload underload training is effective for really two main reasons, or can be effective for two main reasons. Uh, number one, it's a newer recruitment. In other words, the intent to throw something heavier, uh, the intent to throw something heavier harder uh, will do a or has the potential to recruit muscle activity, fast switch, however you want to look at it, that is not typically used when you're throwing a regulation baseball. Again, a lot of the studies uh, show that do show improved uh, performance with overload and load training. Also show a loss of performance at about the same rate that it was gained. In other words, if you gained 5 miles an hour in 6-8 weeks, uh, and then you stopped overload underload training, you lost that same velocity over the same period, uh, approximately the same period of time. Uh, the second benefit overload underload, and potentially probably the even more valuable benefit, is it changes the perception of how you're throwing the baseball. Trying to throw something heavier, you organize the body differently, or potentially organize the body differently. You potentially organize it in a more effective way to create movement patterns that uh, benefit the throwing process. So. Overload on the training, not a muscle development program by any means. Basically, it's a neural program, as I had talked a little bit about neural recruitment uh, and muscle and fast twitch. Um, and the third thing that's important about overload on training, you have to have some way of quantifying what you're doing, measurement. Uh, again, two types of measurement. One is performance measurement to know how effectively you're throwing the baseball from a, using your body. And secondly, uh, results. Uh, are, you, are you improving your throwing from a standpoint of results, either velocity, location, combination thereof? Going back to uh, speaking of strength, um, since we're on this topic, I know earlier you mentioned you developed that product for Jeff Albert and for when that, that player's front foot landed from, from the time their front foot landed to they made contact. Being able to actually improve that after you measure it, I assume that's more so a strength component on how I'm being able to improve that quickness factor now from the, not overload. necessarily. No, it's no, it's, it's, no, no. It, 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 it's, it's a combination factor. You know, if you look at developing ballistic type movement force, a lot of it's neural or a good portion of it's neural. You know, it's like you start weightlifting, you haven't weightlifted and you start weight, weight training. 
Well, in six weeks, you showed significant progress. Six to eight weeks, you showed significant progress. It's not because the muscles got any bigger. It's because you recruit fibers more efficiently. Okay. So a big part of what ballistic training is about is recruiting, maximally recruiting every fiber that you can possibly recruit. You know, the body is basically, the body evolved as a survival mechanism. It wants to do the least amount of work expenditure of energy that it possibly can do. We're still dealing with that today, too many years later or whatever it is. Okay. So we have both, you we have slow twitch muscles, fast twitch muscles. Okay. What you're trying to do is, if you're doing a ballistic movement, is to effectively engage all of the fast twitch muscle fibers you can, but they are notoriously resistant because they burn more energy when they're used. So from a, from a survival mechanism, we do not want to use our fast twitch muscles whenever we don't have to. And so, therefore, if you don't use them, you lose the recruitment capability of them. It's not that they necessarily go away. It's just that you lose the ability to recruit. This is why if you've, you're laid off for three or four months swinging a bat, part of the problem is you've got to recruit all those fibers that are starting to fall out that don't want to be recruited again. Mm. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Dr. Greg Rose, and, and he's with TPI on base U, but one of the things he had said for uh, developing those ballistic movements was the age, how important the age of the athlete is. And, you know, the most optimal time is when their bones are growing faster than their muscles because their muscle is now under um, that tension. And so that's the best time to develop those ballistic movements. Um, I don't know if you'd heard, if you've heard of that before, or if you had any thoughts on, on, um, on that. I, I have to, you know, I, I don't like, I won't comment on things that I don't know much yeah. about, and I don't know much about that. Okay. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, I can see where, if he's saying that what you're doing is potentially, you know, they've shown through studies that you can create more fast twitch. You can convert muscle fibers from slow switch to fast switch, or there's a conversion process that can take place to a certain degree. Maybe that's something that he's talking about in the growing, if, you know, in the growing process, that is the ideal time to meet from my perspective, where you want to try and make conversion happen. If you follow what I'm saying. So that's my two cents. Where, where do you see baseball going in the next three to five years? I know you've been, you've been in this game for a long time, the player development realm and, it seems that we've hit the peak of, you know, swinging up launch angle analytics. Now there's starting to be some pushback. It seems like it'll probably maybe even out in the middle, in my opinion. Where, where, where do you where do you see all this going? Everything has phases. Okay, uh, when I got into this, the biggest my one of my pet aggravations was the role that the doctors had in determining develop, uh, player routines, physical routines. I advocate that every team needs to have a certified physiologist to be working with the team, which none of them had at that time. Um, you're starting to see maybe a little bit more of them, but then the, they were more in the form of strength and conditioning people, as opposed to a certified physiologist who understands how the body actually creates muscle fibers and deals with them. Um, I still think, so when I'm talking about phases, we, we have been, and I, we still are in a phase where the medical community has way too much say in something they don't know anything about. Okay. And that's how the body responds to stimulus force exercise. That's not their realm, but yet organizations have been either medical they, they, they have not had a transition. They, don't, they have not had a third entity, which is the one that is the physiological aspect of it. We are entering another age called analytics. Okay, another, what I call a phase. Where, if you ask me where I see things moving toward, and you say the pushback, I think the pushback is important. I mean, you, you got players like, um, who was the uh, pitching coach for the Braves that had, uh, you know, Maddox and Glavin and... Um, who advocates that we don't th- that players don't throw enough, as an example? Okay, um, th- you know, 
it, there's been so many studies that show if you immobilize a limb, the muscle connective tissue degrades, meaning if you don't have a certain level of stress on connective tissue, like ligaments, tendons, they will degrade. And so I really don't understand how doing less is gaining more in terms of physical capability. So I think at someday, hopefully, I don't know, it's five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, somebody will actually do some real studies in determining what causes Tommy UCL injuries, what causes hamstring injuries in terms of the proper amount of training rest cycle that optimizes or minimizes that potential problem. I think that's the next phase at some point. I don't know when it's going to happen with baseball. It could be probably another hundred years before something like that happens. Do you have, do you have any ideas on why it happens? I think, you know, this is baseball is a strange world in terms of a business. It, 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 the people that they should be paying a lot more to, they're not paying to. And the people that they pay a lot of money to is they shouldn't be paying that much money to them. It's, it's a strange business. It's an inverted, it's an inverted pyramid. If you put, if you look at, when I say inverted pyramid, the, the reward for the effort is inversely proportional from a knowledge standpoint, from a training standpoint. This stuff has been out there for a hundred years. I mean, there's been researchers doing stuff along these lines. There's I, Major League Baseball, perfect example, is look what's going on with this substance on the baseball that's right now. It's a joke in how they've implemented it mid-season. It's crazy. Uh, it's insanity how they operate. With all the money that they spend or lose because of Tommy John type injuries, because of injuries in general, do you think that baseball shouldn't have a well-funded program to be looking at this stuff. Tell me if there is one, because I don't know of anything that even comes close to doing that. Yeah, I don't know of any at the moment. I, I, uh, that's my soapbox. I mean, I don't. I didn't mean to get up on my soapbox, but you ask me where I see, you know, what I see. I think to me that would be the next phase of where baseball needs to go. It really is a melding together of old school, new school, all of the above, it, it, but done so in a very coordinated and very um, uh, focused approach. Paul, this has been a lot of fun. I I really appreciate you coming on. And um, I want to make sure that for those out there watching or listening to this, who want to get and get your products out, uh, I'd love to, to, to be able to send them to the right place. Where, where would people go if they want to learn more and see some of your, your awesome well, products? And I definitely endorse them because I've seen them and they're fantastic for, for anyone, whether you're just a beginner or you're advanced. Um, very, very good stuff. Thanks, Patrick. I appreciate the kind words. Um, right now, basically, you then go to my Twitter, Sepro Sports, at Sepro Sports. Uh, then go to the Sepro.com website. And, you know, that's basically what I'm using. I, We'll be doing some hopefully revamping of things in the near future. Uh, I've got some few things I've been working on, um, getting back more into some training um, stuff. Uh, I've been working on some interesting training products. Uh, this is a this is going to be what I call a little super duper training box. Uh, as I said, what I've tried to do is build blend concepts such as knowledge of performance, knowledge of results. You know, if you look at to me, what's important is again I touched on this. It's one thing to have a tool, but what's as important as the tool is the knowledge of how to use the tool. And that's been my philosophy from day one. Um, and what I, that's what I'm trying to do is right now I've got products out there that focus on knowledge. I'm trying to then come back to what I was doing before and create some tools to go along with those to try and build, bring, bring together both the performance and, and uh, uh, results ability. So, you know, again, problem is you got a player, you tell him to do something. How does he know if he's doing it well? Okay, and that's the key thing. And that's you as you you as a coach. I think it's one of your biggest problems is, you know, how do you find the right way to get the player? Or how do you find a way to get the player to do what you want them to do, but they don't know how to do it? Right. And, that, and that's that's what's key. 
Awesome. Patrick, oh. I, I, pre- I appreciate, I appreciate it. Anytime you want to come back, uh, five years. Oh, from I, I'd love it. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to. I appreciate your time. I really do. Okay. Thank you, Patrick. And best thank of you. luck.